0: Welcome, welcome, welcome on this first Sunday of the new year. And by the way, isn't that an amazing thought? We're already in 2019. I I realized this week that I have lived through two millenniums, two decades, and or two centuries rather, and seven decades. Think about that. That's a long time. And... It seems like it was just a couple of days ago, it was 2018, and here we are already, 2019. What I want to do this morning, though, is a little bit different. I want to talk to you this morning about identity. And most often when we talk about identity, whether we intend to or not, we talk about it on a comparative level. Like somebody says, who are you? And the first words out of our mouth are, I am And then we might even say our name, but then it's not uncommon for us to use comparative words. For example, we might say, I am a male, while you are a female. And we might say things like, I am taller, and you are shorter. So those are comparative words. And without giving it a whole lot of thought, it's almost like it's unintentional. So often our comparative words are intended to elevate ourselves and diminish the other. We do it without even thinking. It just happens. Like we'll say things like, uh, I am taller, I'm thinner, I'm smarter. I'm just plain better. All of those words are things that go on inside of us that helped us to feel something of our identity. Uh, and it just comes naturally us. But wh- what is identity? Identity, for my purposes today, is what gives you a place and determines your position at the table. Okay, let me say it again so that you get this in your mind. So that everything we're going to talk about today is identity is what gives you a place and then determines your position at the table of life. Now, how many of you remember when you used to have large family gatherings and you needed more than one table? Any of you guys ever had to have that? Do, do, you, do you remember what the table's names were? There was the adult table and the kids table. And how many of you remember wishing you were old enough to not have to sit at the kids table anymore? They always make me sit at the kids table. I don't get it, but they do. You wish you were old enough, like you had aged to the point where you could move away from the kids' table to the adult table, but just getting to the adult table wasn't enough, because then it had everything to do with what was your position at the head table, so that you could say, okay, I'm at the adult table now, but I'm at the foot of it, or you could say, I'm at the adult table, and I have the seat of honor. I have the head of the table, so it determines not only your place at the table, but your position at the table. In fact, if you would put this down in your notes, this is like the key for everything. Identity is the currency of the table of life. Identity is a currency. It's what you pay to get there and to get your place there. Now, before we go too much farther, I want to talk a little bit about what is the table and, and what's at the table, and why would we even want a place or a position at the table? Well, this table that you see that's usually sitting right here, this table that you see for our purposes represents the presence of God. It represents uh, the pleasure of God. At this table, we find connection with God. At this table, we find certain things that are given to us because we have a place at this table. We find things like love and security significance, belonging, purpose, understanding. All of that is the fruit of being able to sit at this table. And and at this table that we will call the table of the Lord, we find that um, I have core longings. I come to the table with things deep inside of me that I have need to be fulfilled. A longing for security, for significance, a longing for love, for value, for belonging, all of that's what's inside of me. And you need to understand this, no one gets into or out of life without these core longings inside of you. Everybody does. You can put on a mask, you can pretend all you want, but every single one of us, every human being, has certain core longings that need to be filled. I can remember when I was a kid, I was sitting in a Sunday school class and the teacher was talking about um, wanting to be liked. And my response, as I was probably at the time 11, 12 years old, my response was, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I'm fine with just myself. You know that wasn't true. I cared desperately what people thought about me. I wanted to be loved and I wanted to be accepted because that's a core longing that has been built into the fiber of our being. These core longings drive us all throughout life. They're what cause us to say things and do things. Sometimes it's what causes us sometimes to lie in order to make ourselves look better or be bigger in some way. It's what causes us to steal. I can remember as a kid stealing. I wanted money because my friends had money and I wanted to feel like I was a part of a normal crowd. Well, we came from a poor family. We didn't have a lot of money. And I can remember as a kid stealing money from off the table from my parents in order that I would have some money in my pocket so that I would feel like I was a part of the group. Think about things that have happened throughout your life. People who have done things that when you hear about it, maybe you've read it in the paper or watched it on the news, or maybe there are people you even know personally. People who have done crazy things, and you on the outside look in and know that that's going to destroy their marriage, their family, their occupation. It's going to destroy their lives, but they still do it. It's important for us to be able to ask the question, what's driving it? And I can guarantee you that somewhere behind the scenes, core longings are driving something. And they're being fulfilled in a way that's not going to give true satisfaction, but it is core longings that are driving it. It's why people do crazy things. One of the things that I want you to get is that we have here the table of the Lord where God has intended that our core longings should be met. But there are people that I know, and probably people that you know, who have turned away from this table altogether. They have decided that this table has a promise to it, but that the promises are so intangible, and what they're looking for is something physical, something real, something substantive, that can meet their core longings. And so this has promises, but it seems like it's ethereal. Like it's kind of like misty out in the air. And they want something more substantial. And so they look away from this table to another table. So we're going to take this table, we're going to move it back out of the way. So this table has been rejected, it's no longer there. That table, the table of the Lord, is not the only table that you find in this thing called life. Sometimes you end up with the table of the Lord and you have a table of the world where the world offers you some things that promises to meet certain core longings within you. Now, if you've ever tasted of the table of the world, you know that the table of the Lord has some taste to it. The problem is it has taste that doesn't last. Taste without substance. It's like eating sweets. It's like in Narnia. It's like eating Turkish Delight. It can be addictive, but it doesn't last and it doesn't truly satisfy. And it ought not be shocking to you that people would choose taste over substance because we do it all the time. Think about even over the holidays. How many of you ate things that you know were not healthy for you? Why did you do it? Because they taste good, right? So people choose taste over That which is healthier for them. We do it all the time. And we do it in the realm called life or the realm of the spirit. The world's table offers taste. But it's taste without lasting substance. It's kind of what Paul talks about in Philippians. Uh, You can turn there if you would. Philippians chapter 3. I'm only going to be reading a couple of scriptures to you today. Because I want you to try to get this concept that I am bringing. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up on the screens in front of you. Paul talks about this issue of the table of the Lord versus the table of the world, but this is how he words it. He says, for we are, again, we are, that's comparative words, that's words of identity. We are the circumcision, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And whenever you see the flesh, think about the table of the world. We have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, this other table, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I mean, Paul's going to lay it right out there. He's going to compare himself to everybody else. I more so. Why? Circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul is basically saying he has invested deeply in a table that would make him feel like somebody. Now think about it. Everybody wants to feel important. Everybody wants to feel valued. Everybody wants to feel accepted, to be a part somewhere. Paul is saying, I invested deeply in a table that would make me feel important, make me feel valuable, make me feel like I was somebody. But then he discovered a problem. He discovered that the table of the world that he had been investing in has a certain taste to it, but the taste doesn't last. And if you continue to taste from that table after a while, it will actually make you sick, like eating too many sweets in one sitting. So that Paul goes on in Philippians 3, 7, and he says this. This is a discovery that he made. What things were gained to me, that's the things I thought made me somebody, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things, everything in the world, loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, the table of the Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. This is rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection from the dead. You need to get this. The world has a table, and that table, if this table tasted like crap, you would never eat from it twice. The reason why you keep going back to this table is because it tastes good. The writer of Hebrews talks about the passing pleasures of sin. It has pleasure for a season. It tastes good for a while. But then Paul discovered it doesn't last in its value. So what are the things that we run to in the table of the Lord that gives us a sense of identity? What are the things that people run after, hoping that somehow it will make them somebody? Well, I, I think things like education. Every one of us want to be a graduate. We, we want some letters after our name. We want to be able to say, I have my master's. or, you know. And again, master's is way better than, what, what is below that? <sighs> yeah, it doesn't matter. It's below it. Oh, and if you've got letters after your name, like you're a doctorate, you've got a PhD, well, then you've got to be, really smart. So you get higher and higher and higher academically. Or then you get to a point where you actually have your own parking space. (laughs) Yeah. Who's important where? (laughs) Or you get your own office. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on, I'm not having to work from home. I've got an office. Or you start working out. Oh, I got to have a beautiful body. Oh, and I, I, I'm doing five pounds here, five pounds. You're only doing three. Come on. I got a beautiful body. I got abs. Well, I used to have abs years ago. I've got it or then we run after other stuff. We run after things like you talk about guys having midlife crisis. I mean, I watched guys drive down. I had a guy parked to me next to me. I mean, I mean literally. I had a guy parked next to me recently whose tires were higher than my car. What's that about? It's about somebody who wants to feel like somebody. Or we run after things like cash. I got cash right here. Woo! There we go. We got money. I got money to burn. I got it all over the place. Or even more importantly, we've got to have a relationship. I I need somebody who will love me. Just love me the way I am. Just take me. I know I'm not perfect, but love me the way I am so that I feel better. We get married not to learn how to love somebody else. We get married so that they will love us and take care of us all about relationship and by the way this can carry over even into families where we begin to idolize our family i've even got money on my stand we've got we've got it, we got it carried over where family becomes everything or pretty soon we have to have that house you know if i've got a house then i have finally made it in life i've got a house i've got a spouse i've got a family i've got money i've got a good looking body i've got an education now i've got a big truck Well, maybe I'll even have a parking space if my wife will let me have it. I've got it all. But all of this ends up, if you would think about it, it ends up climbing the ladder of success. That's what this is about. How do you feel important in life? Who can be higher in life? So everything that we're talking about here, everything on this table is about how do you get higher and higher? And the problem, and part of the reason why I chose this ladder is, you climb so high until you realize the only other way to go is back down. Because it really doesn't get you anywhere. We think it's gonna. But in the end, it doesn't get us anywhere. Now, here is my point when I think about the issue of the table of the world. And I want you to get this. In order to sit at this table, this table which has taste to it, who doesn't want more money? Who doesn't want a relationship? Who doesn't want security in their life? Who doesn't want to be accepted and loved? This table, in order to sit at this table, you have to accept a certain premise. There is an underlying premise to being able to sit here, and it's basically this. You're not enough in yourself. In yourself, you are never enough. You have to prove yourself to sit at this table. You don't get to sit down here unless you measure up. So how do you measure up? You do it through performance and through people pleasing. People who can't perform or aren't pleasing in some way don't get to sit at this table because it's not enough just to be you. You're never enough. Now, think about it on a regular way. Think about the people that the world lauds. What are the categories? What kinds of people do the world look up to? Tell me. Athletes. Who else? Celebrity, movie stars. Presidents. (laughs) I know. Yes. You, okay. Who else? Singers. Models, all of these people are lauded by the world because they've either performed at a certain level or they are pleasing in some way. Whether it be politicians like presidents who please a certain group of people or whether it be models who are perhaps pleasing to the eye but you have to perform. And one of the things that it's important for you to get is if you don't perform and keep performing, you lose your place at the table. I was struck recently, uh, and maybe you guys are aware of it. I don't know. Uh, I I don't follow sports a whole lot, so it's not like a big deal to me. I, I think I've maybe watched parts of a couple of football games. I just don't care. So last night... I was talking to a friend of mine, and I told him I was uh, in a restaurant having dinner with my wife, and I noticed that the Patriots were playing, and they won, apparently, because they were ahead. And he wrote back to me and said, "The Patriots weren't playing." I said, "Well, that was a white team. I know that. They had white uniforms, so I thought it was the Patriots." He said, "No, that was the Colts." I said, "Oh, okay, yeah." But the thing that struck me was this: um, about two, three weeks ago, the Patriots, which were like a dynasty. Tom Brady, I would guess. I mean, they were like the powerhouse team out there. They lost, get this, they lost two games in a row. And people began to talk about the fact that they had lost their magic. They weren't going to make it. They lost two whole games in a row. And Tom Brady threw interceptions, apparently. You see, in order to sit at this table and to be somebody important, You don't only have to perform once, you have to keep performing. And you have to perform more and better. That's what this table is about. So how does this work practically in life? Well, I want to suggest some things to you as parents now. I want to suggest that when our kids are born, when they're a child, we love them. We hold them. They're so cute. They, we, we get to the stage where they actually respond to our face, and they smile, and they giggle, and all that. That's all cool. And then they reach the twos. What do we call those twos again? Terrible twos. When every parent's refrain is basically, would you just obey? Just mind. Be good. And without even thinking about it, what we're really saying to kids all too often is, if you would perform well for me, then I will love you and I will accept you. If you will just be good, then you can be a part of our inner circle in our family. If you're going to be bad, we're going to put you over there in timeout. You know, you, just, you, you got nothing to do with us. You're not a part of our family. Go put your nose in a corner. Just just Go. And without even realizing it, we teach kids this kind of stuff. In yourself, you're not enough. If you will perform, you'll earn our love. And it goes all through school. In yourself, you're not enough. But if you'll get A's on the report card, we'll be impressed with you. And we will accept you as somebody. Um, As long as you continue to get good grades, by the way. It's not enough to get an A. I need straight A's. I don't care that you had four A's. If you got a C, that's not good enough. I need all A's. Or things like, uh, are you a good basketball player? Are you a cheerleader? Are you a 4.0 student? All of this allows you to enter into the popular club where you are accepted as somebody. So we live our lives feeling like In ourselves, if people ever knew what I was really like behind my masks of performance and people-pleasing, if people ever saw what I was really like, they would reject me and want nothing to do with me because I have learned from the earliest age on I'm not enough in myself. So we look around. We come to the table. We come to the table of the world where we hope to be able to perform well enough so I can get a seat, so I can feel like somebody. But the first thing you do when you get to the table of the world is you look around because you want to see who has less than you so that you can feel better about yourself. And then you want to see who has more than you, because then maybe I can get more myself. Maybe I can feel better about myself. I can get more. And the degree to which you measure up is the degree to which you get to eat at this table. It's the whole A-team versus B-team thing. Whoever performs better gets more. And no one wants to be a part of the B team. Everybody wants to be on the A team. We all want more. We all want better. And we've also learned that the more you work, the more you please, the more you get from this table. So I begin to make deeper and deeper investments here with more and more of my life. Because I've also learned this. I've learned that there's a law at this table. It started out with one law. The law was you're not enough in yourself. But then once I started getting a place at this table, I learned there's another law, and that's called the law of diminishing returns. What used to work no longer satisfies anymore. It's kind of like drugs. What initially gave you a high doesn't work anymore, so you have to do more and more. Well, it's the same at this table. What used to be enough to get me a seat at this table is no longer enough. I have to continue to work, but I have to work more and harder and better and higher in order to be able to stay at the table and to get to eat, to keep my place and to earn it. Now, here's the sad thing. This mindset all too often has carried over into the church. We have taken the same mindset. We've changed the words. We don't call it performance or people-pleasing anymore. We call it being holy, being righteous, being good. We call it working hard for God. But the same premise is at heart. If you're going to come to God, are you going to work hard enough? Are you going to be good enough? Are you going to perform? Are you going to please, in order to get a place at the table, we just carried it forward into the church. And this table, one of the things that we have found, is this table gives you no rest. It leads to anxiety and fear, to anguish, to despair. It leads basically to fight or flight. You're either going to quit and give up on it altogether and drop out of life, or you're going to become aggressive and you're going to fight it for all you're worth. You're going to say, I refuse to let that table determine me. I'll do what I want. And you end up, by the way, living in a bubble somewhere. Because it's just you; you don't fit in anywhere. One of the things that I have discovered is that this table enough is never enough. Have you? Have you ever said that? When is enough enough? When, when is what I have done enough? It, it, somebody said it earlier. What have you done for me lately? I mean, I was in a church. Uh, my my very first church as the senior pastor where a guy cut his leg badly on a chainsaw, he was out of work for months and months, he had no insurance, <coughs> no unemployment because he was self-employed, nothing. The church, which was a small church, we're talking about like 40 people, the church committed to taking care of him and his family to pay their rent, their, uh, actually their probably their mortgage, their utilities, to get them groceries, to take care of them for those months. We did it, I think it was for six months, maybe nine months, both are in my mind, but we did it for quite a while. That was a huge strain upon this church. One week after he was released back to work and they had come back to church one time, the next Sunday I got a phone call from that family saying, we're not coming back to church because we don't feel any love. I mean, it's true. Ask him. It's true. We don't feel any love. And my statement was, what do you think was just demonstrated to you for the last months? What have you done for me lately? Somehow that didn't convey in their mind as being love. It's kind of like John D. Rockefeller, who, by the way, is still touted to be the richest man who ever lived in his generation. When he was asked how much is enough, he said, A little bit more than what I have. Enough is never enough. So, what do you do when you come to this table to eat, where from this table the currency is power, prestige, possessions? It's being a person of worth, where you've earned a place at this table. What do you do? When you come to this table to eat, you look around to see who has what, who has more, who has less. What's my place at the table? What's my position here? Now, this table, basically, if you think about it this way, is the American dream. Think about it for a moment. What's the American dream? If you work hard enough, If you keep working hard enough, if you work long enough, you can have what I have. You can be somebody. You can be an immigrant coming in from a distance. But if you will work here long enough, maybe not you, but your children's children will earn a place at this table. This table is the table of the world, and it's the American dream. No rest for the weary at this table. So we're going to take this table out of the way now.
1: lest you think that
0: once we become Christians, all of this is done away with, uh, as I said, I think sometimes all we do when we come to the church, to faith in God, is we transfer our membership from that table to that table. We come to that table and we ask questions like, when I get together with uh, pastor friends, when I get together with pastors, one of the first things they will ask you is, how big is your church? I love their wording, by the way. One of their wordings was this. Uh, One of the guys said, how many people do you worship on a Sunday? Did you hear what I said? I know what he meant. You know what he meant. But what did he say? How many people do you worship? Because the truth is, numbers become an idol. What's the most important thing? Or we'll say things like, um, I read through the Bible every year. What about you? Did you read through the Bible last year? Cover to cover? And by the way, I read through the Bible complete by St. Patrick's Day. How about you? We're, We're in a competition where we can get our sense of value. Though we come to the table of the Lord, we're still using that criteria to try to feel important, to get our sense of value. We take that same mindset. We'll say things like, I have a great marriage, good, obedient kids, and a good family. I have a good job that pays for my family. If you don't, you must be doing something wrong, because if you did it the way I did it, God would bless you. We do that kind of thing. We might not word it quite so drastically, but we do that kind of thing, so that people come in the doors who don't quite fit into the mold. Maybe they haven't made it, and they don't feel as valued as accepted, as loved, as wanted. We take the values of that table and we apply it to the table of the Lord. We try to do something to earn our place at this table. Now, for you, it could be different things. This table, which is supposed to be a table that is solely about the presence and pleasure of God that he has in you because he loves you. We have made this table about performance and pleasing too. We have... A Bible you know you know this Bible, by the way, this Bible has my name on it, and if you look through this Bible, this Bible has my name all through it in italics and dark it says it says this: Oh, clap your hands, Chris, shout unto God with a voice of triumph, for the Lord most high is terrible, he's the great king over all the earth, he shall sub- subdue the people under chris, and the nations' under Chris's feet, he shall choose Chris's inheritance for Chris, the excellency of Jacob whom he loved. Do you know I have my own Bible? How many of you have your own Bible with your name in it? Come on. I think this is worth a little bit more than your puny little Bibles you got. This is, there was a time, maybe you guys won't remember this, but there was a time when... If you didn't have a shofar, you weren't a real Christian? If you didn't have a shofar that could usher in the presence of the living God, you couldn't even call yourself a church. What were you? You're a cult. I got a shofar. This is my sho- I've I've got two, by the way. Two. Two. One sits on this little bracket here, neat little thing that was it your dad, Kathy, who did this? I think. Somebody, I think it might have been your dad who made it for me, this bracket to hold my shofar. And then I have another one that hangs on my wall downstairs. I have two shofars. So when you think about identity, who has more shofars? Me or you? <laughs> That's what I thought. Um, in my office, Because I have an office. In my office, my pastoral office, because I'm spiritual, I have commentaries. I have big commentaries. I mean big, big, big. I have shelves of commentaries because I am smart.
1: I know a lot. I have
0: a certificate of ordination. I'm ordained, which means I'm somebody. Are you ordained? I didn't think so. This ordination, by the way, did you notice it's got a hole in it? I had lost my ordination certificate until one of the leaders of Elam came to visit, and they said, next time I come, I better see your ordination certificate on the wall. I think he met in a frame, so instead I put a tack through it. Um, I am moving all of these. Although they are spiritual kinds of things, the truth is we have made them based upon the premise of the table of the world instead of the true table of the Lord. We have made it about performance. We have made it about people-pleasing. We live as if we're still living there when the truth is we're called to live here. That's the table that God has called us to where we can find true satisfaction. And people do it. I mean, think about it in your own life. Some of you even sitting here today have had this thought. Why doesn't the pastor and elders make me a deacon? Because if, if I were a deacon, I, I think I already serve a lot and I think I do a good job and I... I think it would actually make me feel better about my life because then they would recognize that I really am somebody. We take that thinking, which is the thinking of the table of the world, and we bring it into the table of the Lord. There's zero security there. The only way you get there is to perform, and the only way you stay there is to perform, and to perform more, and to perform better. You have to keep striving for your place. Now you compare that with the table of the Lord. It doesn't look as fancy. It's very simple. It doesn't have all the stuff that the world lauds. It's just his broken body and his shed blood. But at this table, here's what he says: Exodus thirty-three fourteen, and he said, "My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest." And then Paul says, in, or Jesus says in Matthew eleven thirty rather. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. At the table of the Lord, you get his presence and rest. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul addresses this whole issue in such detail. I'd encourage you, if you have time, maybe even today, go back and read Galatians 1 through 4. You could read the whole book. It's a short book. But Galatians 1 through 4. For the first three chapters, Paul is dealing with a group of people who have this name, this title, they're called Judaizers. Some of you have heard that term. But Judaizers are basically Jewish people who have come into Christianity. They have become Christians, but they have carried over all things Judaistic, all things Jewish, into their Christianity. And so they say that in order to be a good Christian, you have to eat only certain foods on certain special holy days. And oh yeah, if you're a guy, you have to be circumcised if you really want to be a good Christian. And so Paul hears that teaching and he's horrified. He's saying to them, don't you realize that's the table of the world thinking? And then he says this about the table of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He's talking about the Jewish law now, the Old Testament law. You were under the law, but also the law of sin and death, the law of having to perform to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, having to perform, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. See, these Judaizers had taken the gospel, which is good news, and they have added to it. They've made it the gospel plus. The gospel plus performance. The gospel plus circumcision. The gospel plus certain foods. And the truth is, all too often, even in the church today, we have done the same kind of thing. We have said, if you want to be a good Christian, this is how you have to act. This is what you should look like. If somebody comes in and they don't look right, we have people say, well, maybe they should have this done. Maybe they should get different clothes. We'll buy clothes because they don't look like a good Christian. They don't fit in. Everything about performance or people-pleasing. So we have the table of the world. The only way you get a seat at that table is you have to perform and you have to please. We have the table of the Lord. How do you get a seat here? You just sit down. You just go up and you sit down. All you have to do is believe that what he has said is true. He has said, I have a seat for you at this table. Do you want to sit down? We have made it about cost. The table of the world costs you everything. The table of the Lord costs him everything. That's what it's about. It's about what the Lord can do for you. So, when we come to the table of God, we've got our identity in him. He said he has put Christ inside of you. We have the indwelling spirit of God. He said he sent his spirit into your heart. And then we have an inheritance. That's what we have in Christ. You come to the table of the Lord with nothing of your own. It's all of him. You simply believe him and all he offers you. Your table, your presence at this table is all about surrender. Surrendering all sense of having to prove anything. See, we come to this table and we think we're on trial. We have to prove that I have a place here. And instead, we come to the table and he hands us a party hat and a little kazoo and he says, it's for you, it's a party. I'm here to celebrate you. It's not what you can do. People say things like, well, I haven't been a Christian very long. How long do I have to be a Christian before I can actually have a seat at this table? Just sit down. I don't care how little you know about the Bible. I used to study the Bible in order to defeat people in arguments, missing the whole purpose of it, which was God's love letter to us. It doesn't matter how much you know or how little you know. If you are in him and he is in you, You have a place at this table. That's all it takes. Well, does that mean um, (coughs) I have to wait for a while because, well, last night my wife and I had a big argument. And I'm, I'm not feeling real good about life. So maybe I need to do something to make amends before I can sit at this table. No, it's not about your performance. Well, last night I had some bad thoughts. So maybe I need to repent first. He says, yes, repent. The way you repent is take a seat. You come back home to who you really are in Christ. I wanted to start this year with a very simple, hopefully impactful illustration for 2019. That we as believers don't have to live at that table any longer. It says he has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And he gives us a place at this table. He says this table is set up for you and all you have to do is sit down. And my question for you in 2019 is, which table are you going to choose to live from? And you ask yourself these kinds of questions, like, why do I do what I do? What drives me? Why do I say what I say? Is it because I'm still trying to earn a place at some table? Or can I just accept the fact that I am loved and valued. I am accepted in the beloved. Is that enough for you? This table doesn't look as fancy as that table. I mean, that table, you got a shofar, you got an education, you got relationships, you got an office, a parking spot. This table, shed blood, broken body. But it's the price that was paid so that you could have an eternal place in Him. That's the table. Of the Lord, My question to you this morning is, which table are you going to choose to live at? Are you going to run after all the stuff that the world says will make you somebody, when the truth is God says you're already somebody, you're mine. By the way, the word that he uses there in the Greek, uh, when it says you have been adopted and made sons, a lot of people get upset about that because it's a gender issue. But the word that is used there is swios in the Greek. And it literally means valued adult mature child. It doesn't matter what your gender is. It's applicable to every one of us, male or female. Every one of us have a place at the table. In fact, it doesn't even matter how old you are. You can be 93 like Marion Miller, or you can be a young child who puts their faith in God. That's all it takes to be at this table, and God offers it to you freely. So we're going to do what we do each first Sunday of the year. We come to the table of the Lord, which is center and front as a reminder to every one of us that God's offering us a place at his table. You can choose to stay over at that table. You can choose to make it about your performance, whether you're good enough, smart enough, wise enough, handsome enough, pretty enough. Or you can choose instead to say I want to sit at the table where I'm accepted not for what I can do but for who he has made me to be. And that's what this is about. So we're going to receive if you guys want to make your way on down. The scripture says God prepares the table for us in the presence of our enemies. Sometimes our enemies are situations and people who are outside of ourselves who make us feel insecure. And he says, no, no, no. Even in those places where you are left feeling less than, not enough, it's in those places God says, I've got a table for you that you can sit down and be loved and accepted no matter how well or how poorly you think you've performed lately. This is his table for you. I'm going to ask again that as the bread is distributed, you would hold that bread until we've all received that we can share together. Thank you. Give hope. The table of the Lord, where his body was broken, so that you who were broken can know wholeness of life. Security, not in yourself. That's not what this is about. This isn't about positive confession. This isn't about self esteem. This is about allowing him to esteem you most highly. To say that your value is determined not by how well you performed yesterday. About how well he performed. The broken body of the Lord for you, for wholeness. Let's partake. At that same table, there's a cup. Every feast has to have a cup with good wine. But this Wine is the shed blood of our Savior. For the forgiveness of sins, paid in full, paid in full. Every sin you have ever committed or could ever commit, paid in full by this blood. So as we partake, we're entering into the truth that I don't have anything more to prove. He's done it for me. This is a hundred proof drink for us. Again, I'm going to ask each one of you to receive it and hold it so that we could share together as one body. God bless. It's you. Would you all stand? Jesus said, There's going to come a day when we're going to do this again. It's when he returns for his bride. And there will be what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, I don't know what kind of weddings you have been to, but I think weddings ought to be fun a time of celebration, a time of joy. And when you go to a wedding, you don't want just a little cup. This is like a taste for us in preparation. But at that wedding, there will be a cup that never ends. And it will be richer than anything you have ever had in this life. But it's most common that at a wedding, there will be what are called toasts or salutes to the bride and to the groom. Well, in our case, we're the bride waiting for the groom to appear. But I'm going to ask if you would hold your cup up and with me just say, salute. Say it again loudly. You're saying it to the one who gave it all so that we could have a seat at his table. This is a literal table. That's not the table that we're talking about. We're talking about the table that God has prepared, which is his presence. Let's receive it with joy. Now, as you walk into 2019, let's do it with a sense of security and significance. It's not based in ourselves. It's based in him and what he has done for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good rest of your day. Yes. You guys could help pick up who did this.